Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 71, To Catch a King. I'm writing this while sitting in the loggia of Santa Maria della Grazia in Arezzo, one of the finest early Renaissance buildings ever. And I'm all alone. Behind me is one of Andrea della Robbia's masterpieces, and the church also holds a fresco by a pupil of Piero della Francesca. The fact that even one of these smaller towns in Tuscany can hold absolute wonders entirely off the beaten tourist track tells you all you need to know about the delta in wealth between Italy and most of Northern Europe in the Middle Ages. One who was painfully aware of that delta in potential tax income was our friend, Emperor Henry VI. If he could only get hold of the Kingdom of Sicily, the inheritance of his wife, he would be so rich and so powerful. But having lost his army before Naples, and even worse, having his wife falling into enemy hands, means all looks terribly bleak. But his luck is about to turn, thanks to one of the most famous and most unexpected events in the High Middle Ages, involving one of England's most overrated monarchs, I'm sure you've heard the story a thousand times of Richard the Lionheart being kidnapped and ransomed by a crowned highwayman. Today, you get the Kurosawa treatment and you'll hear the story from the German perspective. But before we start, just a reminder, the History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is to sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. you find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Felix, Marty and Ella who've already signed up. History has not been kind to our Emperor Henry VI. He occupies a slot between the heroic Barbarossa and the enigmatic Frederick II. It's never quite clear what he was for. But I always saw him like the slice of bread between the two pieces of meat and the Big Mac. It isn't strictly speaking necessary, but without it, it wouldn't be a Big Mac. Chroniclers were less kind to him. They portrayed him as a ruthless, calculating power player. Three events have shaped that reputation, one of which happened to be one of the most famous events in medieval history. But let's start with the first two. The first was how he dealt with the desertion of young Henry, the son of Henry the Lion. You may remember from last episode that young Henry, the son of Henry the Lion, had deserted the imperial army before Naples. He first fled to the defenders and then returned to Germany, where he spread the rumor the emperor had died. Young Henry might have even harbored ambitions to get himself elected king. This unprecedented act by a member of the second most august family in the realm called for retaliation. The desertion compounded the initial betrayal by the House of Wealth, who had sworn on oath to stay in exile until 1193, but had returned almost immediately after Barbarossa had left on crusade. As to be expected, Henry VI had both father and son put into the ban and called for an imperial war against the House of Wealth. The Saxon nobles did not need much encouragement to muster an army against the Lords of Brunswick, Henry the Lion had spent the last 40 years expending his personal property at their expense, and though they managed to depose him as duke, he had remained the most powerful and most vengeful of aristocrats in Saxony. But Henry the Lion is now 62 years old, and he has no appetite 
for a full-on confrontation with the Empire. He offers the one thing he knows Henry VI wants more than stability of the Empire. He offers to join another campaign down to southern Italy. And this time he would come along personally, so that no shenanigans would happen. Well, shenanigans still needed to happen though, but this time not against the Emperor, but against the Saxon nobles. For the second time in his very short reign, Henry VI will leave the Saxon nobles hang out to dry. They are not aware of that under-the-table agreement between the two Henrys and expect the imperial overlord to join them with all his might and bring down the lion for good. Henry VI keeps up appearances, declares young Henry an outlaw and all that. But when it came to sending troops, ah, no, that did not happen. The Saxon nobles left alone by their emperor get a bloody nose before Brunswick. And that is the first X on his score sheet. His duplicitous policy in Saxony is followed by his involvement in the botched election of the Bishop of Liège. Liège in today's Belgium was an important bishopric, crucial to retain some control over Lothringia and as a line of defense for the empire's western border. There were two contenders to succeed the recently deceased bishop, one from a pro-Hohenstaufen party and another from an anti-imperial faction. As per the Concordat of Worms, in disputed episcopal elections, the emperor has the last word. And he chooses a third individual, Lothar von Hochstaden, a Hohenstaufen ally who had just lost out on the Archbishopric of Cologne. The anti-imperial party appeals to the Pope in Rome and Celestine III, by now firmly opposed to Henry VI, appoints their candidate, Albert, brother of the Duke of Brabant. Things go back and forth a bit until, on the 24th of November 1192, the papal-appointed candidate is struck down by two German knights whilst travelling near Reims in France. A murdered bishop is never a good look. What makes this more problematic is that the two knights who had murdered Albert were close associates of Henry VI, and they find refuge at his court. The Duke of Brabant blames not just Lothar von Hochstaden, but the Emperor himself for the murder of his brother. This local issue is now gradually turning into a full-blown rebellion, calling for Henry VI to lay down his crown. Let us not forget, the murder of Thomas a Becket, just 20 years earlier, was still fresh in people's mind. The whiff of episcopal murder is the next scratch on Henry's scoreboard. And that brings us to the third and by far biggest stain on Henry VI's reputation. In January 1193, Henry VI receives news that the Duke Leopold of Austria had arrested King Richard the Lionheart of England on his return from the Holy Land. The short version of the story goes as follows. Richard the Lionheart had insulted Duke Leopold of Austria during the Third Crusade. Hence, when he travelled through Austrian lands on his return from the Holy Land, Leopold had him arrested in revenge. Henry VI then bought Richard the Lionheart from Leopold and demanded ransom from England. The amount of the ransom was ratcheted up as Henry played Richard against his enemies, King Philip August and John Lackland, and only after more than a year was he released from prison, having sworn allegiance to Henry. In the public imagination, Richard the Lionheart is painted as the heroic knight returning home after securing the survival of Outremer. On the other side, you have the arch-villains, John Lackland, who conspired to bring his brother down, 
even joining up with the Angevin's arch enemy, the wily Philip August. Henry VI is seen as greedy and calculating, using his position to squeeze out every penny from the unfortunate English peasants. Only Duke Leopold gets away okay. He at least had been insulted and was hence justified in what he did. The other three had no justification, other than insatiable appetite for money and power. Now, let's look at this in more detail. First up, the famous insult before Akon. The Third Crusade was a pan-European effort, led initially by two kings and an emperor, Philip Augusto of France, Richard the Lionheart of England, and Barbarossa, Emperor of the Romans. By the time the French and the English arrived in Palestine, Barbarossa was long dead. What remained of the German contingent was initially led by Duke Frederick of Swabia, Henry VI's younger brother. After Frederick had died of disease in early 1192, command of the Germans went to Leopold, Duke of Austria, the most senior imperial prince present. When the Crusaders took Akon, the most important stronghold along the coast, the question of the distribution of the spoils arose. The two kings, Philip Auguste and Richard, raised their banners as a sign where the plunder should be collected. Leopold raised his own banner alongside, not in his role as duke, but as a representative of the emperor. Well, what he did not know was that Richard and Philip Auguste had already decided to keep him and the other Germans out of the distribution. So Richard had Leopold's banner taken down by common soldiers. That infuriated Leopold in two ways. One, he didn't get any plunder, nor did his knights and soldiers, which will be difficult to explain. And then secondly, his personal banner had been insulted. But Henry VI's emperor has also been insulted, as the rights of the empire and the standard of his representative had been disregarded. The insult was certainly one justification for Henry's behavior, but the much more significant one was that he had already declared Richard the Lionheart an enemy of the realm, for a number of quite good reasons. First, Richard had encouraged Henry the Lion to break his oath and return early, creating a civil war in Saxony. Secondly, Richard was an ally of Tancred, the usurper king of Sicily, who denied Constance and Henry's legal rights to southern Italy. Then thirdly, Richard had extracted vast sums of money from Tancred, which was money that by rights belonged to the kingdom of Sicily, and hence to Constance and Henry. So as far as Henry VI can make out, Richard the Lionheart was out to undermine his rights and standing in Europe, and was simply an enemy. Whether Richard pursued an active anti-imperial policy is however doubtful. It's quite clear that he did not take his agreement with Tancred particularly seriously, since he departed Sicily with all his troops once the gold was on board and rumblings of an imperial army arriving before Naples could be heard. And I doubt he had any notion of the havoc an early return of Henry the Lion would cause in Germany. It's typical Lionheart. He's a bit of an elephant in a porcelain shop, crashing into things and then looking befuddled at the debris. And then we come to the question whether apprehending, imprisoning or ransoming Richard was an unprecedented crime that no one else was daring to commit. For that, let's find out why in December 1192 Richard finds himself disguised as a merchant in Vienna, literally a thousand miles from home. When Richard returned from the Holy Land, he initially planned to go the same route he had come. That means going via Sicily and then to Marseille, through Provence and the county of Toulouse, into his duchy of Aquitaine. 
That route was blocked because he got into another quarrel, this time with the Count of Toulouse, who was planning to apprehend him should he come anywhere near his lands. Then there was a Genoese fleet based in Sardinia tasked with finding and capturing him. The Genoese may be in the pay of the King of France or have had their own reasons to seek out Richard. And even if he had made it through to Marseille, a journey up the Rhone would have delivered him right into the hands of Philippe Auguste. So he had to go down the Adriatic towards Venice. It was now late autumn, and the seasonal storms broke his ship somewhere in Dalmatia. From there he could have gone to Venice and then across the Alps on one of the western passes. But that would have meant going through Swabia or Bavaria, held by close allies and family of Henry VI, the man who had just put a search warrant out for him. Now Richard, the accomplished diplomat, Encyclopedia Britannica, had irritated so many rulers in Europe that he had only one route to get home. Sneak in under disguise through Slovenia and Austria into Bohemia, and from there into the lands of his brother-in-law, Henry the Lion, from where he could take ship home. Richard, more accomplished than the rest of his family, again according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, was shockingly unconvincing as a traveling merchant. When he passed to the county of Gorizia, he had the count send a hugely valuable ruby as a present to ensure safe passage. This truly royal gift was unlikely to have come from the humble merchant Hugh he was travelling as. The count also did not like Richard, for God knows what reason, and had men searching for him, and in a skirmish Richard lost eight of his knights. From Gorizia he ran for three days, covering 150 miles before he collapsed with exhaustion in an inn near Vienna. There he was again quickly discovered, because he was throwing money around as no merchant would ever do. Duke Leopold of Austria had him apprehended and brought to the castle of Dürnstein, where Leopold informed Henry VI that he had the King of England in custody. I do not know about you, but it seems to me that this Hero of the Troubadours, Encyclopedia Britannica, was lucky to make it as far as Vienna, with pretty much all of Europe out to catch him, including his own brother. Henry promised Leopold 50,000 marks of silver for his hostage and Richard was brought to the Trefels, the great imperial castle in the Palatinate, and then negotiations began. Henry, as we now know, has one political objective at this point, the crown of Sicily. Hence, his demands on Richard were a. money and b. military support. 100,000 marks of silver plus 50 ships, 200 knights and 100 archers led by Richard himself. Richard, like most members of his class, did not care one bit about the money. What he refused to do was serve in Henry VI's army. That would have turned him into an imperial vassal, which he could not and would not accept. For the next year, the two sides would negotiate almost exclusively about this issue of service in Henry VI's army. Henry had a tremendous negotiation position. Between him and the very significant military power of the Angevin house lay the Kingdom of France, so he did not have to fear any efforts to release the king by force. Moreover, Richard's brother, John Lackland, did not want his brother to return. Richard was childless, so if he ended up dead in a German prison cell, John wouldn't have minded one bit. Even worse for Richard, John and Philippe Auguste were conspiring about ways how to prolong Richard's stay on the Rhine. These two conspirators offered Henry VI a huge amount of money just for keeping him in Germany. 
Richard's only trump card were his cousins, the sons of Henry the Lion. They were weighing in on the Lionheart's behalf, offering on the one hand to take over the military obligations, whilst on the other threatening to block any legal proceedings against Richard in the Court of Princes. In May, the two sides finally agreed a compromise. Richard would pay an additional 50,000 mark of silver, so 150,000 in total, but would be relieved from having to serve. Instead, he would convince his wealth cousins to join the campaign. Money then began to flow from England, and a date for the release of Richard was put in the diary for January 17, 1194. But shortly before that date, envoys from Philip Auguste and John Lackland arrived, offering Henry the exact same sum as Richard had, 150,000 mark of silver, for the prisoner. If Henry had handed Richard over to the King of France, the Lionheart would have never got out of jail. And that was quite tempting. Given the choice between Richard out in the wild, able to retaliate for his involuntary sojourn, or Richard languishing in a French prison, never able to get back at him, well, that's pretty easy. So Henry cancelled the assembly scheduled for the initial release date to ponder the different offers. He scheduled a new assembly for February 2nd. There, everyone now expected the release of the Lionheart, and his mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, was even considering coming down for the event. And as Richard came into the assembly, Henry threw in his hand grenade. He called on the envoys of Philip Auguste and John to read out loud what they had offered. He then turns to his princes and asks them, what should he do? These guys saw all the dollar signs and would probably have voted to ship the hero of the Third Crusade from the Trefels to the Chateau de Vincennes. Richard then grabbed the last remaining option, the option he had always avoided at all cost. He knelt down and agreed to become an imperial vassal. He handed the Kingdom of England over to Henry, who returned it to him as an imperial fief. As a vassal of Henry VI, Richard could demand protection from his enemies, which meant he could no longer be handed over to the French. Richard came back to England and had himself crowned again in an attempt to wash off the oath of fealty. And then he spent the rest of his life fighting against Philip Auguste and died, aged just 41, from an arrow shot. Henry's behavior in this affair, especially that last move to force Richard to become his vassal, has been the cornerstone of his poor reputation. He's shown as a grimy ransom dealer versus the heroic chivalric knight. But all that has happened is that the world had moved on, from a world where emperors like Henry II or Otto the Great pursued many Christian ideals to one driven by dynastic interests. And Henry's dynastic interest was to a. gain the Sicilian inheritance and b. keep his empire safe, which meant keep the house of wealth in check. Richard delivered him that, and screwed chivalry, the Crusades and all that. He is no different to Philip Auguste, who will brand a war against the Count of Toulouse as the Albigensian Crusade against heretics. Nor is he the only one to be shadowed by the whiff of murder. Richard, by the way, had the murder of Conrad of Montferrat, the elected King of Jerusalem, hanging over him as well. Now next question. What did they do with the money? Leopold took his 50,000 mark of silver and invested it into new walls for Vienna, a ducal mint and other useful infrastructure. Henry VI used it to gain the Kingdom of Sicily. 
Flush with cash, he mustered a large army. Since he could not demand a second Italian campaign from his vassals, his army consisted almost exclusively of his own ministeriales and some very expensive mercenaries. All throughout the negotiations over Richard's ransom, Henry VI had meticulously planned this campaign. Things also improved in other ways. Constance had been released after a year of imprisonment thanks to papal intervention and probably in the hope to reduce the urge of the emperor to come down to Sicily. And on February 20th, 1194, Tancred had died. Though Tancred had been formally recognized and invested by Pope Celestine III, Henry thought that with his death, papal policy would now change. His army was getting ready and surely Celestine III would not want to stand in the way of such overwhelming force. Celestine, he thinks, will do the sensible thing and finally recognize Constance's right to inherit. But no, Celestine III invested Tancred's little son as King William III of Sicily. And so Henry's army set off in April 1194. They held a great muster on the fields of Roncaglia in June, and then the imperial Lord High Steward, Marquard of Anweiler, an important ministeriale, takes command of the combined Pisan and Genoese fleet. No longer will Henry risk that the squabbles between the two republics impede his success. The Lent army advanced in three columns down to southern Italy. The Normans put up virtually no defense. The city of Salerno, where Constance had been apprehended and imprisoned, saw its worst nightmares come true. Henry VI left the city to his men to plunder for three days, and afterwards he had all its houses put to the flames. As the army marched down the length of Apulia and Calabria, the imperial fleet under Marquardt of Anweiler takes Messina. In October 1194, Henry VI set foot on the island of Sicily. With that, the military part of the campaign is over. Henry VI dismisses his expensive mercenary troops. Tancred's widow, Sybil, and her son, the little King William III, are holed up in the royal palace above Palermo. As the Germans approach the city, the children of Tancred are brought to a strong defensive castle in the interior, whilst their mother prepares to throw herself at the feet of the conquering emperor. Henry VI, elated by his easy success, is in a magnanimous mood. He promises Sybil and her children freedom and safety. They are even allowed to retain the county of Lecce and the principality of Taranto, one of Tancred's possessions from before he had taken the throne. On December 25, 1194, Henry VI is solemnly crowned King of Sicily in the Cathedral of Palermo. The royal insignia brought to him by the little boy King William III, who kneels before him, swears allegiance and in return receives the county of Lecce as his fief. Within almost three years, Henry VI had recovered from his nadir as a defeated war leader who had lost his wife to his enemies to being the lord of an additional two kingdoms, Sicily and England. Okay, England may be a bit of an exaggeration, but Richard the Lionheart had knelt before him, which is quite cool for an emperor that most people have long forgotten. But even more astounding than the rise from this set of serious setbacks is the other miracle that took place a day after the coronation. His wife, Constance, by now nearly 40 years old, had not made it to the coronation in Palermo. She had to stay behind in central Italy because after eight years of childless marriage, she had become pregnant. 
A pregnancy at that age in the 12th century was extremely unusual, but not impossible. The unnaturally fecund Agnes of Weiblingen may have had her last child at the age of 52, but then she was really unnaturally productive. One of the most unusual medieval stories surround the delivery of Constance Child on Boxing Day 1194 in the town of Jesi in the Marke. The story goes that Constance gave birth in a tent on the main square in the presence of the reputable matrons of the city. And then the tent's doors were opened and she breastfed her little son for all to see as further proof that the child was indeed hers. As much as I would love this to be true, and there is even an inscription on the town square in Jersey claiming to be the spot where that tent once stood, there are good reasons to believe the story might have been an invention. It only begins circulating after another set of stories were making the rounds. Constance, so we are told by Albert of Stade, was already 60 years old at the time of her marriage, and thanks to some medical quackery, Constance had made her belly swell up so as to convince the emperor of her miraculous pregnancy. And then, when it was time, the doctors lanced her stomach, let out the pass and passed the butcher's son off as the heir to the throne. These stories were repeated in various forms. Proof was found when the king of Jerusalem called Henry's son a butcher, or in fictional stories that Markwart of Anweiler had told the pope that this wasn't the emperor's real son. The tenth story was created to discredit the rumors. But who was that child whose birth agitated so many scribes from St. Albans to Albano? That child is Frederick, the future emperor Frederick II, history dreamboat for both Germans and Italians, an enigma who for some was an autocratic proto-Hitler and for others a scientist on an imperial throne. The stupor mundi, as Matthew Paris called him. At the end of December 1194, the little boy is the crowning glory of a truly great year for Emperor Henry VI, an adorning nightmare for Pope Celestine III and all his successors until that day when they will have ripped out the Hohenstaufen root and stem. Now next time we'll see how our emperor of ill repute will attempt to make peace with Pope Celestine, offering him the one thing the papacy wants even more than freedom from encircling imperial armies, and that is Jerusalem. Before I go, let me thank all of you who are supporting the show, in particular the patrons who have kindly signed up on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans. It is thanks to you this show doesn't have to start with me endorsing mattresses or meal kits. If Patreon isn't for you, another way to help the show is sharing the podcast directly or boosting its recognition on social media. If you share, comment or retweet a post from the history of the Germans, it is more likely to be seen by others, hence bringing in more listeners. My most active places are Twitter, at Germans History, and my Facebook page, History of the Germans Podcast. As always, all the links are in the show notes. <laughs>